Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Testing times, talk of a U.S. economic wake-up gathering steam, but can the science keep up? Mexican mutiny, big oil producers agree to supply cuts, but one nation says no. And a healthier headspace. The CEO aiming to help healthcare heroes cope with the stress. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Once again, to first move wherever you are joining us from. It's also Easter Friday, so many global markets are closed. It's been a challenging week for many people after another week spent in sad and strange circumstances. We're here with you and we have a jam-packed show with the latest news, but hopefully some advice, as you heard there, for dealing with some of the anxiety you may be feeling at this moment. More on that coming up later on in the show, but for now, we'll get straight to the drivers. JP Morgan sounding the alarm with its latest outlook for the US economy. Economists say the unemployment rate could hit 20% in April with a loss of 25 million jobs. Economic growth could shrink by 4 40% in the second quarter. The economic data this week truly underscoring, I think, the need for a plan to reopen the U.S. economy. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, you and I have been talking about this, it, it seems like, for weeks. The, the cost of the economic and the jobs yeah. crisis, wherever you are in the world, has to be weighed in some sense over what we're trying to achieve with the health crisis. You can't choose between these things, but we do right. need a plan. So the conversation needs to be had. Absolutely. So the social sacrifice of these 17 million people who've mm. lost their jobs and then the short term plan to get rescue funds to them. We know these extended unemployment benefits are going to start to flow in the next few days, maybe starting in California and in New York and some of the big states. So that extra money is coming for small business still need to connect them with the promise of all of that cash. But that's the near term picture. And then the longer term picture is when do we go back to what will be a new normal? And, you know, interestingly, the Fed chief yesterday said, you know, we will go back. We will have the economy recover once the virus is contained. But be careful how quickly we move. We need to have a plan nationally for reopening the economy. What we all want it to happen as quickly as possible. We all want to avoid a false start where we we partially reopen and that results in a spike in uh in coronavirus cases, and then we have to go back again to to go to square one. We all want to avoid that. So- 
patience and balance and avoiding a false start? Because don't you think that would do lasting damage to consumer spending and consumer psyche, Julia, uh, if, if people don't feel comfortable going back to work or going back to some sort of a routine? We know from our polling this week, 60 percent mm-hmm. of Americans said at the end of April, April 30th, they do not feel comfortable going back to their pre-crisis routines. Yeah, as desperate as we are to return to some normality, I think at this stage, that point for me is critical. The the majority of people still think we can quickly try and reopen the economy and get back to normality. But at this moment, the majority of people are afraid that we don't have perhaps the testing. We're not sure who's had this, who's got this, and, and the protections need to be put in place. There to know to that testing, right? Testing to whether you have the virus, antibody testing, some sort of monitoring so that we can do contact tracing and find out if there are outbreaks or hot spots that come back in the fall. We know how to contain that and how to also contain the economic damage from that in that neighborhood. We also need to talk about policies in place in the future so that frontline workers are better protected, right? So that people are paid to stay home when they are sick. So there are other kind of societal structural mechanisms so we don't find ourselves with so much economic damage to the people who are the essential workers in the first place. Yeah, and it's so tough to gauge as we began this segment with some of the expectations here are are terrifying in terms of numbers, but I think you and I have been sort of predicting this now for a while, that it is so tough to gauge what the short-term and the longer-term impact is. Technology on the testing side is key for me, but also technology. This... The United States is known for its innovation, for its big tech companies. And the fact that we're now starting to see those names cropping up with one, getting money to people in the short term to protect the economy. But two, of course, just looking at the operations around the country and going, how can we be so advanced on the one hand and yet on the front lines where it matters? At times we're in the dark ages. It's so interesting and on, in two fronts. It's when you talk about ventilators, for example, and the frustration of not being able to, to get ventilators or get uh, the proper masks for and PPE for the frontline workers. And on the other hand, you've got those money sitting there to give to uh, the unemployed or to give to small business, and you can't connect the people who need it with the funds that have been promised. That's also, you're right, a technology problem. It's just in the biggest economy on earth. Will we learn from this to make sure it doesn't happen again? Yeah, digitization, the use of technology better. Christine Romans, thank you so much for joining us as always. Now, New York has more coronavirus cases than any country in the world. Around 162,000 people have contracted the virus in the state. More than 7,000 people have lost their lives. Athena Jones has been looking at what we're seeing here. Athena, great to have you with us. It's tough to comprehend the scale of what we're seeing, and we've been talking about it, I think, on a daily basis. For the medical workers on the front lines, it's been impossible to keep up with what they're facing. Uh, good morning, Julia. That's right. You know, the, the, the impact of this virus uh, on a state like New York, is, as you mentioned, this is the state with the most cases in the country. And in fact, more cases than any country in the world. So uh, uh, a lot of impact here, including on healthcare workers. There have been some positive signs in recent days when it comes to that, uh, those concerns we had over the last few weeks about overwhelming the hospital system. Governor Cuomo saying uh, in his most recent update that it appears as though uh, at the rate things are going, it, it may be possible to see that the hospital system stabilized. But there's no doubt about it. As we enter this holiday weekend, uh, we're... we're, we're, be, we're 
seeing bad news, more bad news, some of it wrapped in slightly better news. So the state of New York uh, reporting its its highest single-day death toll for the third day in a row. At the same time, hospitalizations are way down. They went down to 200 from 585 the day before. Uh, uh, Intensive care unit admissions are also way down. And so these are positive signs. These are the kinds of signs they want to see. And this is why Governor Cuomo says social distancing is working here. We need to keep doing it. As you mentioned, though, there are still concerns about supplies uh, in various places. Uh, While you talk to some hospital workers in one place, they'll say we have enough masks. Others will say, well, we're we're having to use our masks for four, five shifts. We need to be able to have a a resupply. And so those are still some lingering issues. And also, uh, the fact is the, the governor had to sign last night an executive order allowing licensed funeral directors from all around the country to come to New York and operate here in New York to take off some of the pressure on the system because so many people have died and are so, some people have died so quickly. Uh, more than 7,000 New Yorkers are falling victim to this to this virus. Julia. Yeah, it's, it's unimaginable. Athena, we were just showing some pictures, I think, of Heart Island. Can you tell me what's going on there, please? Right. Heart Island is an island in, in Long Island Sound. It's north of here. It's, it's off the coast of the Bronx. Uh, it, is a, it is an island that's been used for over 100 years, 150 years or so, as a place to bury uh, unclaimed bodies. And it's run by the Department of Corrections. Well, this, this time, because of this crisis, uh, they are now going to be uh, burying un, unclaimed bodies there in, in, in two weeks' time. If they haven't been claimed in 14 days, they will be put on, on Heart Island. They will be uh, identified in such a way that they can be uh, disinterred uh, to be uh, buried again, a uh, proper burial that the family may want to give it. Uh, but the, the change here really is a change to the, the to the rules in the New York Medical Examiner's Office. Before, unclaimed bodies still went to Heart Island, but, but after 30 days or even 60 days, now because of the influx of, of bodies and deaths, uh, that, that, that number has come down to 14 days. So it's just another sign of how of what, what, what a toll that the virus is taking. Julia? Yeah, it's, um, I'm lost for words. Um, Athena Jones, Thank you so much for joining us there. And I can tell it's incredibly cold out there because your eyes are watering. So um, quick hot drink for you to stay warm, please, and stay safe. All right. The European Union has agreed an emergency relief deal worth half a trillion euros. Weeks of fighting over money, medical supplies and border restrictions have strained European solidarity. The most contentious issue of all, debt sharing. Well, that's been left for another day. Fred Pleitgen joins us now from Berlin. Fred, let's talk about what they did manage to agree on first, and then we can talk about where the big struggle was. Hi, Julia. Yeah, I mean, they were very proud of the fact that they did reach an agreement. But you are absolutely right. The most conscientious issue is certainly the one that they left out, which is those corona bonds or or euro bonds, as as they're also called. Now, what they did agree on is really a three-tier system to to support countries that are in trouble financially because of the coronavirus crisis, companies that are in trouble because of the coronavirus crisis, but then also employees as well. On the one hand, you have the European stability mechanism that, of course, we know from the 2008 financial crisis to support nations that get into problems. There was a lot of back and forth, especially between the Netherlands and Italy on that issue, what the terms would be. In the end, they did manage to reach an agreement on that. The European Investment Bank is going to be the uh, the uh, organization that's going to help small and medium-sized businesses in a lot of these uh, countries uh, to, to get over the hump, to, to really stay in business as long as they're being shut down right now. So that's going to be uh, that mechanism that they're going to use. And then there's that program, SURE, which is the jobs program. And that, Julia, is pretty much 
an exact copy of the German playbook of 2008. The Germans called the short labor program, the Kurzarbeit program, as they call it here in Germany, where essentially what companies do is they make their employees work maybe half the time, maybe even less, pay them less, and then governments pick up the tab or pick up the difference. Of course, the Europeans realize that a, government, a lot of governments can't do that. So now they have this EU fund or this EU mechanism called Sure uh, to try and get that into place. That really is something that the Germans say helped protect a lot of jobs in their country in 2008 and something that they want to see on a European level. You could hear Angela Merkel yesterday talking about what a great program she thinks that is. So it seems as though um, on a lot of the issues they did manage to reach an agreement, but you are absolutely right. The big question is going to be the financing of all this and are euro bonds in the end going to be issued and there of course the differences between some of the southern european countries specifically italy and spain and a lot of the northern european countries like the powerhouses germany the netherlands austria and also finland as well that still remains in place and angela merkel yesterday I listened to uh, her press statement uh, that she gave her easter press statement she once again flat out says she rejects Eurobond as a mechanism uh, to try and to try and finance all of this, uh, Julia. Yeah, it's a challenge, isn't it? I guess they get risk being accused of some kind of moral hazard, having not agreed to this during the financial crisis, but then agreeing to it when all nations are impacted by something so devastating to the same degree is this health crisis. But um, the question is, do they come around to it in the future? Because for Spain and Italy, it's, um, it's been more devastating than, than ever. Fred, thank you so much for that update there. Fred Plygen. All right, now to an update on the British Prime Minister's health. Boris Johnson is just beginning his recovery, says his spokesman. The official said the Prime Minister is following doctor's orders and will not be going to checkers his countryside retreat. Prime Minister Johnson left intensive care last night but does remain in hospital. He tested positive for the coronavirus two weeks ago. We wish him well. All markets, meanwhile, closed for Good Friday, a day after Saudi Arabia and Russia reached a tentative deal to reduce production by some 10 million barrels a day in May and June. But at the OPEC Plus meeting, Mexico declined to support the agreement. Talks will continue at today's G20 meeting of energy ministers. At the same time, we should caught up with the CEO of the Russian Direct Investment Fund and discuss the issue and the need for a longer-term fix. It's very important that the agreement that is being hammered out today is really a longer-term agreement. Uh, it uh, lasts for around two years, maybe more. And I think there is a clear alignment to understand that, you know, we need to be together while economy is going through recovery from coronavirus effect. So this is specifically why the agreement is longer than one year. And this is why many countries are committing to it. Linda Perrius joins us now live from Abu Dhabi. That's an interesting point about the setup of this deal. What I see in the, the composition of what we've got here is something very, very front loaded. But talk us through the logic of that and whether Mexico can be brought on board here. Okay, let's uh, cover the uh, machinations of that agreement and the structure, mm. Julia. 10, 8, and 6. Uh, 10 million barrels a day for two months, 8 million barrels a day for six months, and then the remainder till April 2022 at 6 million barrels. Uh, but you do the math here, and it's pretty simple. Uh, the magic number is 2 billion barrels. So you have uh, two months at 10 million barrels, and then the next six months will eat up 2 billion barrels of the glut. And that is the target for 2020 if you didn't act. So this is solid. Uh, when it comes 
comes to Mexico, I have to think that Donald Trump's going to intervene here. In fact, the president of Mexico was suggesting, Julia, that uh, the U.S. is even willing to pick up 250,000 to 300,000 barrels that uh, Mexico did not want to cut. Their target was 400,000. They walked away at the table just offering 100,000 barrels a day. And there's a reason behind this as well. Pemex, the state operator in Mexico, it lost $18 billion in 2019, has a debt of $105 billion. And the president, Lopez Obrador, said when he came to power, he would boost the production by 50 percent. They're nowhere near close to that. And that's why he's not eager to cut. Now, whether Donald Trump would offer the cuts and what formula for the United States is another matter entirely. I was about to say, what role is uh, the United States playing in this ultimately? I mean, what we're talking about is stripping back around 10% of of all supply that we have at this moment. But, John, you've talked to us many times over the last few weeks about how a demand for for oil has dropped by, what, a third as a result of the demand destruction that we're seeing around the world. So where does that leave us? Yeah, we're at least 30 million barrels a day right now. Uh, Many think in the second quarter it's going to be 20 million barrels a day. But I have to say, Julia, the G20 has been going on now, the energy uh, minister's meeting, uh, for about an hour. That is the right venue. Uh, Mexico is a member, so there's going to be pressure put on there. In fact, Vladimir Putin said, I'm ready to pick it up where we left off yesterday. The nine-hour marathon, four hours courtesy of the Mexican minister. She's not very popular around the table right now. And also we'll get clarity, U.S., Canada, and Brazil. The reason I bring it up is how do you define the U.S. contribution here? Uh, The energy secretary late yesterday before the OPEC meeting broke up said you can't mandate U.S. companies to cut. But the IEA executive director who helped call the meeting uh, can certainly come up with some figures they can use for the second half of 2020. So that's how you get there. 10 million from OPEC plus if they can get Mexico signed on. And you have to manage expectations, Julia. Five million barrels is what's expected out of the G20 today. If you don't manage it, we're at $22 on WTI. We had that 18-year low of $20 on March 30th. It's going to be a bloodbath on Monday if you don't manage it. Then we shall wait and see what they can come up with today. John Defterius, thank you for keeping on top of that for us. We're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, the wait for COVID-19 antibody tests. Could that be the key that unlocks the path back to work? And later, getting into the right headspace, how medical staff and the rest of us could perhaps benefit from some clearer thinking and some mindfulness. That's after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Testing, testing, testing. I'll never forget those words. The world's words of the World Health Organization seven weeks ago as the realization about the scale of the coronavirus outbreak dawned on the world. We now realize the importance of testing not only to identify those that have the virus and protect others, but also that it may be a vital tool in restarting economies around the world. We're already seeing it and we've discussed on the show a key component of that is antibody testing, singling out those who've already been exposed perhaps even without showing symptoms. Dr. Anthony Fauci of the White House Coronavirus Task Force said on CNN's New Day Today that those tests are on the way. Yes, actually, at the last task force meeting, the the individuals responsible for, for both developing 
validating and getting the test out or saying and, and I'm certain that that's going to happen that within a period of a week or so we're going to have a rather large number of tests that are available one of the things that you mentioned that's important because other countries have gotten burned by this these antibody tests are tests that we do on other diseases but they need to be validated you need to make sure that they're consistent and that they're accurate and that's what we're doing now both with the NIH and with the FDA is validating them as soon as they get validated they'll be out there for people to use and so dr Fauci, <clears throat> does that mean what does that mean for us does that mean that we are shifting away from an emphasis in testing for coronavirus to antibody testing to see who has had it and recovered no not at all i mean th those things are done in parallel one does not uh, essentially rule out the other we still rely appropriately and heavily on the test to show that someone is in fact infected. Whereas the antibody test says that you were infected and if you're feeling well, you very likely recovered. When you're trying to find out whether a person is infected, that's the test we always talk about. But as we look forward, as we get to the point of at least considering opening up the country as it were, it's a very important to appreciate and to understand how much that virus has penetrated the society because it's very likely that there are a large number of people out there that have been infected, have been asymptomatic and did not know they were infected. If their antibody test is positive, mm -hmm. one can formulate kind of strategies about whether or not they would be at risk or vulnerable. Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now. Sanjay, always great to have you on the show. Our regular viewers will have known that we've been dis discussing this for a couple of weeks now, the, the testing for antibodies, the ordinary tests for those that are sick with the illness or the virus right now. We've also had companies on saying, we're producing tests, we're, we're getting them out there. Where are we on a nation scale coming up with these tests and, and getting a more mass program? in progress yeah you know it's interesting we we've heard the story about the the actual test for the virus for some time julia and everyone knows i think at this point that we certainly had inadequate testing early on they're ramping up uh that those uh, virus testing now the antibody testing which is a different test that's looking for the antibodies in your blood after you've been exposed to the virus it, it was interesting. They, they sort of loosened up the regulations, Julia, the FDA did initially because they knew that these were important tests. They wanted to get them out there. And I think what followed were, frankly, some, some bad tests, uh, tests that were not validated, did not seem to be very accurate. So now I think that they've gone back and uh, tightened up the regulations. They're going to validate all these tests ahead of time. And as you just uh, heard from Dr. Fauci, he thinks these antibody tests uh, should be available in much larger numbers. He said within the next week, we'll have to wait and see because certainly trust Dr. Fauci. But we've heard that line before with other testing. So. But it could be very valuable, I think, the antibody testing. If it were widely and easily available, Julia, I would have that test done as well. Was I exposed to coronavirus? I don't know. I never really had any symptoms. But I think the point is there may be a lot of people out there who never had any symptoms or had minimal symptoms, but in fact were infected with the coronavirus. This test will help them figure that out. You actually answered my next question there with in that we've heard this before and perhaps we've been a, a little bit disappointed on the the time horizon here but we've also discussed on the show yes. the idea that we're not even sure how much immunity you build in your system mm. how long it lasts whether it's enough 
Are the tests that we're talking about producing at some point soon going to be able to work out how much immunity you have and also what's enough perhaps to get you back in the workforce and not still have you at risk? That that, that is the the critical question, Julia. And and I think, you know, the good test will tell you if you have the antibodies, which is an important data point. But I think your question ultimately is, so what does that mean? Does that mean you, in fact, are protected? And how long are you protected? Uh, We don't know the answer to that. Uh, We think that people are going to be protected, at least for a period of time. One thing that people have looked at is is, uh, the SARS virus, because that was also a coronavirus and had some similarities. And what they found was that people did develop immunity, but it didn't last years and years. For example, they tested people after five years and found they really didn't have immunity at that point. But even if you had immunity for a year, long enough till the vaccine uh, came around, hopefully, uh, that would be very, very helpful. Yeah, a bridge to a vaccine. That's what we're trying to build here right. in, in whatever form. Exactly. Um, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, great to have you with us as always. CNN's chief medical weekend, correspondent. Julia. You too. You too. Uh, Okay, we're going to take a break. Up next, Europe and the United States talk of exit strategies from emergency measures. But in the world's poorest countries, the crisis is only just beginning. What more is required? We'll discuss. Welcome back to First Move. More than 1.6 million cases of coronavirus have been recorded now globally. The death toll has surpassed 96,000 people. The IMF warns the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression of the 1930s, but there are also signs of hope. The city of Wuhan, where the outbreak was first reported, reopened this week. The United States top doctor is even saying that Americans may be able to take summer vacations. But while richer nations work on strategies to move on from the initial impact, It's the world's poorest countries that will be hardest hit. Philanthropist Melinda Melinda Gates of the Gates Foundation spoke to CNN's Poppy Harlow and warned that we have yet to fully grasp the scale of the crisis in Africa. When I saw what China had to do to, to isolate such an enormous part of their population, my first thought was Africa. How in the world are they going to deal with this? I've been in townships all over Africa in slums. When we talk about in our country physical distancing and then hand washing, if you live in a slum, you can't physical distance. You have to go out and get your meal. You don't have clean water to wash your hands. And so as soon as I saw that, and we know from the foundation's work how quickly disease spreads, I thought, oh, my gosh, we have a crisis on our hands that we aren't even talking about yet in the United States and what's going to happen to the rest of the world. That's how much worse it's going to be in the developing world. It's going to be horrible in the developing world. And part of the reason you're seeing the case numbers still don't look very bad is because they don't have access to very many tests. So, you know, look at Ecuador. Look at what's going on in Ecuador. They're putting bodies out on the street. You're going to see that in countries in Africa. You think that this pandemic is just actually going to set us back in terms of gender disparity, that it will disproportionately fall on women. What do you mean? Here's what I know, is that 70% of the healthcare workers around the world are women. 
women do more than two times the unpaid labor in their homes. So they're caring for people in the health system and they're caring for people at home. And at the same time, we have this disparity that we're not collecting what we call disaggregated data. What that means is we're not differently differentiating data that comes in about men and women. I wonder what, what keeps you up at night right now. What keeps me up at night are the vulnerable populations. Um, you know, it, what keeps me up at night is in the U.S., the kids who are falling behind because they don't have access to broadband or to a computer, so they're not getting to continue their learning. What keeps me up at night are the vulnerable populations who I know in Africa, I've met some of them. Um, I can't imagine being a parent in those circumstances. And those are the things that keep me up at night. Definitely time to act. David McKenzie and Eleni Jokos join us now from South Africa. Guys, great to have you on the show. Some really poignant comments and fears, I think, being addressed there. David, I want to begin with you because we've seen the struggle that nations in, in Europe have had, the United States have had, some of the richest nations in the world, let's be clear. How does the healthcare system where you are compare to, to Europe, to the United States and the struggle we've had? Because there's no comparison. Well, where I'm here in South Africa, in fact, it's a more complicated picture. There is, Julia, a kind of mix of systems, a pretty robust public health system and a private system as well. But on the African continent as a whole, you know, you asked what's it like compared to Europe, around 4,000 hospital beds per million people in Europe. In 43 countries in Africa, there are around five hospital beds per million people. And that shows you why the leaders on the African continent have largely acted decisively to shut down the economies, close borders, and to try and stem the spread of COVID-19 before it gets out of control. You know, as that interview suggested, at this point, there are fewer confirmed cases on the continent than in other regions, but those cases could spread rapidly. And if it gets to that point, it could quite easily collapse the health system. Just in the last few days, we've been reporting out a story on medical tourism, uh, uh, Julia, and the issue there is... Both the middle classes and the powerful, wealthy elite in this continent frequently travel overseas for medical treatment. It's about a billion dollar a year industry, that. And what I've uh, found out in speaking to you know, people who usually use that, including a historian in Nigeria who is a cancer, uh, is recovering from cancer, uh, he said this might be a wake-up call for African leaders in the many countries where uh, just citizens of this continent feel that the health infrastructure has been ignored over the years. They said they're stuck in their countries, the leaders are stuck in their countries, Maybe it's time that they did more uh, to fix those um, health infrastructures uh, after this pandemic, pandemic went. Julia? Yeah, and a call to action for other leaders, I think, around the world that this continent needs focus to and support at this moment. Eleni, come in here because fast action to lock down and shut down your economies helps to try and suppress the number of cases. But the economic consequences of that, as we're seeing everywhere, are devastating. 
Absolutely devastating. I mean, here in South Africa, just last night, President Cyril Ramaphosa uh, extended the lockdown to a total of five weeks. That means that the economy is going to be shut down until the end of April. Just to give you a sense of what it's like, only essential goods are sold in stores, which means that anything that is manufactured in the country that is non-essential, even mining companies have been shut down. So you can only imagine the economic devastation that is going to occur. This is why the president said that companies should try not resort to force majeure. They should still pay support suppliers, even if they're not getting goods, and they should still pay employees. But the World Bank came out with staggering numbers, Julia, and we're talking about decimation of sub-Saharan African growth, where it's going to contract by over 5% in 2020. That is a scary number, because if you need to get jobs and economic growth going, um, the, the lowest number you can have on economic growth in Africa is around 3% to really make a dent in terms of um, sustainable development goals and and spending money on infrastructure. The other big problem that the World Bank and even the UN and IMF have mentioned is that Africa right now is going to need debt forgiveness and debt relief because the continent as a whole spent over $40 billion in debt servicing costs just last year. If we can free up that money, you pump liquidity straight into the markets, which means you can throw money at this problem. Remember the European Union, the likes of China and even in the US are, are embarking on quantitative easing and stimulus packages. African continent doesn't have the fiscal room to do this. So we need liquidity. We need to get money into the system. And of course, with the help of the IMF and other institutions, you're seeing everyone coming to the party. Even the African Development Bank is going to pump $10 billion into uh, oil producing countries, as an example, that are going to be completely hurt by the drop in the oil price and of course, a drop in demand. So the domino effect, Julia, is incredible. And the point is that everyone has to now stand together to find a solution uh, to the African problem uh, that is going to relate to COVID-19 and just the impact it's going to have on the ground. Couldn't agree more. And your point about debt forgiveness and freeing up money that isn't there at this moment, such a critical one. Guys, thank you for helping us with this week's call to action. Such a huge problem and a focus and a solution required here. Elaine Jokos, David McKenzie, thank you so much. All right, coming up. On first move, stay-at-home orders continue in many parts of the world. How one company is offering remote communication solutions with a cloud phone system and more. The details next. Welcome back to First Move. As millions of people around the world are forced to find new ways of living, of communicating and working from home, telecommunications company Avea moved quickly to enable large companies, hospitals, even governments and more to swiftly adapt to this new normal. Avea currently says it powers around 90% of the Fortune 100 companies alone. Jim Cherico, CEO of Avea, joins us now. Jim, fantastic to have you on the show. As I mentioned there, we're, we're all trying to adapt to the new normal in, in various different ways. Just start by explaining exactly what you do and how you differ from perhaps some of the other communication companies that names keep popping up all the time. Zoom, for example, was on the show yesterday. What makes you different? Yeah, sure, Julia. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. And clearly our hearts go out to everyone battling this pandemic around the globe. Avaya is the largest collaboration and communication company provider in the world. Uh, we're different because we, op we have more than 100,000 customers. We operate in over 180 countries. And as you pointed out, 90% of the Fortune uh, 100 run on Avaya. Um, we have been deploying our work from home solutions as a leader in the enterprise and in, in, uh, cloud space. 
now since uh, the early part of January. And in fact, we've deployed more than 2 million licenses for free to allow our customers to have the business continuity they need to run their business. Um, but really, that's only half the story. That's the business side. There's obviously a human side to this as well. And Avaya has technology that others do not that can help ease the stress and anxiety on, on all of us. And let me just give you a couple examples. Humana, 13 million members, global company in the health insurance space, realized that they needed to get solutions in order to help alleviate a lot of their concerns from their customers, many of whom are seniors, therefore in a high risk category, and in fact rely on the telephone for a lot of their communications. Mm. We immediately deployed 21,000 licenses so they can handle the massive increase of call volumes. They also could have health and safety for their employees to work from home and be productive. And similar experience with Deutsche Telekom with 7,000 customers in just four days we enabled their workforce to work from home, really helping answer questions and alleviating a lot of stress on their customers. Talk to me about the healthcare sector as well, because I know you, you have more than, what, 5,800 healthcare institutions around the world, and you specifically were helping some of the, the healthcare workers in Wuhan, the epicenter of this original outbreak, just to communicate, to try and relieve some of the need for, for PPE. Talk to me about your experiences with that. Yeah, sure. We started, um, we have a video application and collaboration platform that we call Spaces. And what's unique and different about that with many of the video providers is it does provide the capability to do video. But after that session ends, we have a room where the folks can continue to collaborate. And that's what we've been deploying across thousands of hospitals. And we started, as you said, back in January with Wuhan, where we deployed our video uh, uh, Spaces technology really to enable not only the doctors to con consult with other doctors in the red uh, hot zone and outside by doing it virtually, but also we've been connecting patients with their families because obviously the patients are left alone in, in their hospital bed. So our, our solution uh, eases a tremendous amount of strain on the hospital, clearly with the supplies being in, 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 uh, in short supply, being able to consult with your patients and providing that extra comfort and care alleviates a lot of the pressure on, on getting and changing your gowns each and time you visit you visit new customers. And our video solutions, in fact, have been up roughly about 1,800% since January. And we're just glad that we can help connect people in the time of crisis. Yeah, physical distancing needs some unique solutions at this moment. And the time, I guess, is what's key here as well, just allowing that room to be open the whole time to allow the interactions. Jim, I think one of the big questions for all of us at this moment is, what does the new normal look like with just a fraction of people, even just here in the United States, that coming into this actually worked from home? What is the new normal? Will more yeah. people, far more people work from home in the future, do you think? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I will tell you, COVID-19 has really accelerated, if you will, of re reinventing uh, sort of the new workforce. I've been at home now for almost a month. I'm a go-to-the-office guy. It's taken me a little while, but I'm, I'm adapting quite well. And, and I think that will be the new norm. In the U.S., as an example, there's 60 million knowledge workers. And prior to this, this pandemic, only about 2 to 3 percent worked from home. Studies suggest 25 to 30 percent in just the next two years. So it's accelerated that move. And really, uh, if you look at the long-term trend, you're gonna really see that collaboration and remote worker capabilities are gonna be essential for the enterprise. One would not have thought of that even six weeks ago. The good news from an Avaya perspective is we're here to help and we have technologies that can enable productive work from home, uh, uh, work from home agents. 
Yeah, it's going to be interesting to, to see what happens. Hopefully it makes us all better workers, perhaps, and a better work-life balance, but we've got a way to go till we get there. Jim, great to have you with us. Um, Jim Chirico there. Stay safe, sir, and thank you for the work you're thank doing, you, too. All right, coming up after the break. last night in London and it was police saluting the NHS health workers. Our doctors and nurses will have their own psychological wounds from the virus, them and, and many others. The CEO of Headspace joins us next and gives us advice on ways to handle that. Psychological damage to healthcare workers dealing with coronavirus patients has come to light in a survey of healthcare workers from China. More than half had symptoms of depression. Nearly 45% felt some level of anxiety. Over a third showed signs of insomnia. More than 7 in 10 felt distress. Headspace is offering its online meditation services free to healthcare workers in the UK, France and the United States. It also struck a deal with Governor Andrew Cuomo to help New Yorkers too. Rich Pearson is CEO and co-founder of Headspace. Rich, great to have you with us. I don't think given the images that we've seen from around the world, there's any surprise, the anxiety and the pressure that our heroes on the front line have faced. Talk about the decision to, to give them access to, to what you have here to try and help. Yeah, thanks. Well, thanks for having me. I think, you know, we realized pretty quickly that the folks that were going to be on the front lines were going to be experiencing extreme kind of mental distress and knowing that they're going to have to go into the hospitals and healthcare systems every single day. Uh, we really thought about this as a kind of marathon, not a sprint. And I think you're seeing that play out now. So we really wanted to provide a service where, you know, in between the great work that they're doing, that they can they can look after their their most precious resource, which is their their mind. Um, so we first made it available in the in the US, and then we quickly followed up with the NHS in the UK, made it available for 1.2 million uh, of their their whole staff in the NHS. And then yesterday, as you mentioned, we launched uh, in France with the, the healthcare ministry to make it accessible there. So you know, there's content to help with stress, with anxiety, um, uh, content to help you sleep at night. Um, the specific packs on sadness. So really looking at all of the emotional ups and downs that you know our heroes are going to be facing, we really feel that Headspace can can help in that journey. How much response have you seen? Have you seen people signing up and actually using this product and and telling you that it's helping? Yeah, we we've had so many stories from frontline. You know, you just have to kind of go on on social channels and and see the response that we've had from folks that are actually in the, in the hospitals doing this great work. Um, we've had stories of people saying that they don't know how they would survive without it. Um, I think people are just looking for some kind of uh, pause in their day just to take a breath. And I think a, you know, a service and a tool like Headspace can can really help people in that in, in their struggle as they as they do this work. What about education too? Because children children come to mind. You know, for many of them, they perhaps understand why they can't see their friends, they can't go to school. But how do you explain to children what's going on and, and try and help them understand? Do you have help on that front, too? Yeah, I think, well, two things that have come out of this, you know, this um, 
this pandemic is that I think we we appreciate our healthcare workers more than we ever do. And I think anyone that's got kids at home, I've got a kid at home, they really start to appreciate teachers um, and how hard a job that is. And so we've actually made it available for all educators. That's actually our, our social impact kind of um directive that we have going ongoing all the time uh, but we've actually created some specific content for parents and for teachers to be able to explain the situation to to their children in a way that kind of makes sense through the lens of mindfulness and then we've created specific bespoke content we have a kids section in in the app um, where parents and teachers can can use it with their classrooms or or with their children at home which you have 62 million users in i believe 180 different countries we're all at different stages of of this outbreak the pressures are different here do you think just based on what you're seeing and the use that actually we'll all learn to be more mindful about our friends about our environment about the people around us as a result of the experiences that we've had yeah i think i think what we're seeing is that people are really opening up and accepting the fact that our mental health is as important as our physical health. You know, we spend a lot of time looking after our physical health, but very few of us actually spend the time to look after the health of our mind, which we believe is the most our most precious resource. Um, and I think a situation like this really brings a lot of these um, these kind of the, the struggles that people have with their their mental health to the surface. And um, I just, you know, one thing that I do is think is definitely going to come out of this is that people are going to start to prioritise the, the health of their mind more and more. Um, and I think we're seeing that with the increased usage that we have on the product. I think we're seeing that with, you know, our partners like Starbucks that have made Headspace available for, you know, all of their employees. So I think you're going to see employers taking um, a stronger look at the health of their of their workforce through their mind. I think you're going to see this in uh, healthcare systems, as we're already kind of seeing. And I think you're going to see it integrated in schools because I think it's just going to elevate it. And when you see the governor's office in New York uh, reaching out to us to make it available um, to all New Yorkers, I think that that shows you how worried uh, people in um, you know important positions are thinking about the state of our mental health in a in a pandemic like this. Yeah, in a pandemic, but at all times, it has to be a conversation that can be had. Rich, thank you for joining us on the show and keep in touch, please, and stay yeah, safe. Thank you for having me. No, thank, thank you. you. The CEO of Headspace there, Rich Pearson. And I've tweeted out more of the Headspace offers for healthcare workers and New Yorkers. That's at Julia Chatterley CNN. So if you want to get that information, you can. It's on my Twitter handle. Thank you for watching. Thank you for being with us all week. We leave you today with the sights and sounds of Good Friday observances at Paris's Notre Dame Cathedral. Only a handful of people were allowed. Sorry. We're allowed in. Um, you can watch the video and see. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.